0: This is Swampside Chats, a podcast of communists shooting the shit over current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, for our inaugural episode, recorded on Friday, January 20th, we discuss the impending Trump presidency and what it means for the left today. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. I post as uh, Jurassic Marx on the website. Uh, joining me tonight is Donald.
1: Yeah. Hey, this is uh, Donald Parkinson, uh, also from the
2: Communist League of Tampa. Uh,
0: and also joining me is uh, Lexi.
2: Hey, what's up? I'm Lexi from uh, Red Party, juggling my pseudonyms around, trying to figure out what's the best one. I've published on a CLT site before.
0: Okay, so I guess the first thing I want to talk about, um, when Trump was elected, it, it kind of like felt like one of those weird moments where like everything kind of goes off script. And it kind of reminded me of like uh, 9-11 in a weird way, where it's like, there's just this weird, there's this vague vague sense of like unreality where the thing that was not supposed to happen happens. So I guess the first thing I wanted to start with was uh, what was your just kind of like initial gut reaction to like Trump getting elected? Were you surprised, Uh, you know, what was, yeah, what was your initial thought? And uh, I'll start with you,
2: Lexi. Oh God. I was definitely surprised. I had been listening to Five Thirty Eight, the you know um, Nate Silver's uh, podcast. I think they're part of the ESPN family, Uh, from what I understand. Nate Silver got a lot of his uh, statistical skills from uh, killing at poker, Um, (laughs) so I thought I don't know. Thought it was funny that Five Thirty Eight was covering the horse race, Um, even though Five Thirty Eight gave like Trump a serious shot when a lot of like liberal pundits and you know other like kind of scientific media sources. <laughs> I was still pretty surprised. <laughs> I was still I was still surprised. I I assumed like a lot of people that really wanted Hillary to win, not just wanted like Trump to lose, but wanted Hillary to win. I uh, I, I shared a lot of their assumptions, and I think uh-huh. if you're just doing kind of scientific method and in- induction kind of approach to political science, that a lot of um, you know, a lot of like college bound like. Uh, little like Ben types are doing, <laughs> um, then, then it, it seemed pretty reasonable to assume that that wasn't what was going to happen. Although months before that, I thought to myself, there is a long-run tendency that only the underdog Democrats, when it's an underdog in the primary, uh, tend to win the general election. Establishment Democrats, hmm. if, they, if they come to the primary as, a, as, a, uh, as an establishment figure, they have a hard time in the general election. That seems to be pretty consistent. Yeah, I never um, even thought of that either. That's true. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I had that feeling, you know, during the summer, but by, by the time the election rolled around, I had, you know, I was well in line with the, you know, uh, liberal reality, which, you know, reality in quotes, I suppose. I was well in line with the idea that, well, I mean, just look at this model. I mean, it's, it's, it's unlikely, even though unlikely is still a chance. It's just, it's still unlikely and it was unlikely and it happened though. <laughs> yeah.
1: I was just going to say like the uh, the logical positivist side of me is like Trump's not going to win. This isn't going to happen. But it happened and I was I was honestly like when I saw how much support he was getting, like how big his rallies were, and I started thinking, yeah, this guy might actually become president. And so I started to mentally prepare myself for that reality, which I'm glad I did. And I was like, all right, so yeah, President Trump is probably going to be a thing. What does this mean? But I didn't, I initially, like, I would say, like, I was, I was bending towards Hillary was probably going to win because I thought that she was basically going to, like, try to create this popular front type campaign and try to, like, unite all these different progressives and, like, get out to vote and try to, like, you know, basically try to do some popular front type shit. In order to get out the vote and run that kind of campaign. But really all she did was rely on fear of Trump and celebrity endorsements. And I think a lot of people didn't really realize how horribly Hillary was running her campaign. And so yeah, it was kind of a feeling of uh, you know, I was a little surprised, but I kind of had uh prepared myself for it before. I had a little bit of um i'm not gonna lie like a little bit of feeling of kind of like revenge towards liberals you know like because there was just so much like cringy liberalism that like resulted absolutely from yeah. Trump winning. and Let's like i just like this, how smug the liberals were how they just felt like this you know was supposed to be there that they were supposed to get what they wanted and that's how things had to be like that smugness was just like me like i was just Fuck you! But at the same time, I was like, "Well, we're gonna have like one of the worst right-wing presidents ever." At the same time, so
0: Hillary literally had like a glass ceiling. Literally, Hillary literally had like a glass ceiling of paper mache that was gonna like drop down, and like, yeah, it was. She was clearly tempting fate.
2: Well, yeah, I, I think the point about liberal smugness. I can't believe it's as politically pertinent as it is, Um, but it is. Uh, There's a real channeling of all the class resentment that, you know, a socialist movement used to wield like it was its bread and butter um, against this, uh, what some people call the professional managerial class, the PMC. I I felt like a, a lot of PMC types were the only people really excited about Hillary and not just Trying to stave off, you know, fascism or whatever, and so the, the the smugness associated with PMC types ended up being like incredibly politically toxic, and um, yeah, like it's that, interesting, right? Like, well, oh, yeah, there,
0: there's like this really bizarre like jocks versus nerds mentality, like yeah. in so many like political people, where you know what I mean, like. Oh, yeah. the, it's like maybe it's just like an epiphenomena of like the complete eradication of like class politics or maybe it's like i don't know a weird sociological thing but i don't know what it is but there's this sense among like liberals and democrats like we're the smart ones we're smart
1: yeah like and that's part of like where i think this whole narrative of like oh trump won because like a working class revolt because liberals think oh well you know, working people are dumb people, and dumb people vote for Trump, so therefore like, Trump won because of, like, workers. But, like, if you actually look at, it, like, the statistics, like, most people who make under 50K did not vote for Trump. But, like, they kind of did construct this narrative, like a rust bolt revolt from, like, you know, the the working class was, like, you know, truly getting behind, And Trump capitalized on that. Yeah. And so, like... It's, it's so many liberals were like, "Oh, you know, all you workers who voted for Trump, you deserve to lose your health care." Just so much liberal smugness. Like I remember reading Lena Dunham's piece on it, and it was just <laughs> like, it was just like, "Oh, we were supposed to win. This was supposed to be our night, but they took it away from us." And and how could this happen? I just couldn't imagine how this could happen. It's just, it's just mm. not the way the world is supposed to work. But it's like I... the world doesn't work the way liberals think it works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, when I, when I first heard, like, heard the new, like, so I was, the night before, I didn't want to get too sucked into it, but I was looking at, like, the New York Times, like, prediction percentage meter or whatever, and, like, it, just, it started going up for Trump, and then, like, it just kept going up and up and up and up, and I was, like, looking into, like, 4chan, because I wanted to watch 4chan go on suicide watch, but, like, they were <laughs> winning, so, like, it just got more and more smug, so I had to stop looking at it, but I actually went to bed early, right? But all night, I dreamt I was sitting in a newsroom, like, watching the results come in. <laughs> and so, like, I, w- I wake up the next morning a little early, and I get up, and I go out, and, like, uh, my roommates have the results on, and Trump won, and I just started laughing. Like, I was like, yeah, you yeah, know, like, I really, I, I realized, like, I really should have seen this coming. You know, it's like, I'm a Marxist. I believe in the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. I believe that all the economists are wrong about the capitalist system. Like, why did I assume that all the so-called experts were right about this election? You know what I mean. Most
2: most importantly, you believe in Murphy's law. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like it's why. Yeah, why did I just uncritically like buy into it? Because like everything we've been looking at, everything I'd seen, suggests like a Trump win, but I just ignored it because out of like a bit the vague sense that the experts knew what they were talking about. And yeah, it was like a real, I realized it was like a real abandonment of like critical thought on my part.
1: Yeah. But I think what it's kind of done is it's like made a lot of people like sharpen up their critical thought. And I think a lot of people no longer trust the experts for better or for worse, because a lot of those people are right wingers. And there's
0: not like a general like erosion of uh, trust in institutions, which, you know, part of what propelled Trump into office in the first place. I mean.
2: Reg- regarding critical thought and uh, <laughs> and the Democratic Party, uh, I mean, let's let's take it back. Like seven years ago, I uh, you know I was like a Democratic socialist. I was comfortable being in the Democratic Party before Obama's election, <laughs> and I listened to a lot of like atheist podcasts, that kind of thing. They hadn't, uh, I, I, I didn't I didn't really pick up on the uh, Islamophobic and imperialist stuff that was hiding in New Atheism and I didn't realize why new atheism existed. It was to replace old atheism, which was, you know, Marxism. (laughs) I I certainly thought of myself as having a scientific sort of worldview in regards to religion and in regards to politics. And of course, if you have a scientific worldview in regards to politics, you have to be liberal and support the Democrats. Like that's where reason leads and is from a certain kind of a political logic. And for, you know, I think there's there's some reason i mean look uh, i i think what i think about the democrats will be made obvious but at the time it seemed that if you (laughs) if you're rational you know you supported uh the science behind global warming you supported stem cell research uh you knew that like fetuses weren't full-grown human babies, you know, like, so that this, it's not like a matter of soul. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a matter of cognition and and all those things. And then after this election, this election proved to me that like, uh, the Democrats are just as vulnerable to conspiratorial thinking and getting that kind of, you know, forgive the usage of the word hysterical, um, response that is not a rational response. Like it's a conspiratorial kind of response. Um,
0: You're absolutely right. Like, and that's usually, that's usually a sign that your worldview is fucked because (laughs) when you start resorting to like conspiratorial explanations for what's going on, like that's usually a bad sign. Like I remember now I heard that I heard this from Zizek, so I don't know if it's bullshit or not, but (laughs) I I remember him like talking about how in like the fifties, like the the, the CPUSA, we're trying to like explain like their losses, and they were started talking. about... They got really interested in like water fluoridation and like the effects of that.
1: Wow, <laughs> that is that does oh, sound like some CPUSA
2: like tier shit, though. Yeah, like, well, think think about like uh, you know whenever this something went wrong for the Stalinists, it was the Trotskyite and uh, you know, or, yeah, or fascists or 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 you know, eventually it was like capitalist pig dog or imperialists, you know. Um, yeah even even along the lines of what's happened to the workers movement and labor the way that people talk about neoliberalism sounds like an elaborate conspiracy theory instead of like a change in the forces and relations of production or something
1: like it's like you know
2: back in the good days we
1: had like nice things like unions and like welfare (laughs) states and like you know like you know social democracy but then these bad guys got the power and took it away from us exactly so we just need to get like the good guys in the power again they'll give us all the free
2: stuff that we lost and, and merely a crisis of leadership yeah um yeah i don't know um it's it's a tendency you see where when when a political movement fails um sort of become
0: yeah well that's the that's the appeal of conspiracism in general right like all that illuminati shit took off when like the black power movement fell apart you know Um, There's a really good pamphlet called, like, How to Overthrow the Illuminati that talks about the history of that.
2: I adore that pamphlet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you you see that pretty frequently, like... Or that's why... That's almost partly, I think, why conservatism so often tends towards, like, anti-Semitism. Because they need some kind of, like, agent that ruined their perfect old way of things, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what all conspiracy theories is. is There's this reification of a natural, harmonious state of society... Avengers this alien outside force that's corrupting it and like we just need to like get rid of this like corrupting force and in this case it's like Russian influence like <laughs> yeah if, like, the Russians are just like oh, fucking with the way normal democracy in America is supposed to work and that's why this isn't working like it's not because hey maybe we don't actually have that democratic of a system and you know it's instead it's like oh the Russians are you know corrupting our our harmonious perfect government
2: system. This is coming from the Democratic Party, this very Cold War nationalistic sentiment, and we, it's interesting because we were just in a moment when we we were struggling with some Bernie Sanders supporters to be like, look, if you're for socialism, you're not going to be able to absorb yourself into a nationalist and, you know, capitalist party like the Democrats, and I mean, the Clinton campaign, I couldn't have written that. I mean, they, they really deserved to to lose as a party, as a party that understands yeah. how the system works. They, you know, regardless of how anti-democratic it, uh, the system is, the Democratic Party are pragmatists. If if you If you're an idealist, I don't mean this in the Marxist sense, I mean this in the sort of everyday sense, if you have ideals that you hold close to your heart and that you try to live on and you fail you fail in your efforts you still have your ideals when a pragmatist party like the democrats that are don't even they they have ideology it's a hodgepodge but you know really their self-conception is that they are pragmatists when pragmatists fail they have nothing to fall back on they're worthless
0: well and in some ways like the democratic party almost can't have an ideology because (laughs) I've been I've been reading about the I've reading the book the uh, The Democrats of Critical History, and the picture that emerges of my ma- in my mind of the character of the Democratic Party for like the last, I don't know, half century, is they're basically political squatters. Like structurally in the United States, there needs to be two parties, right? And so there needs to be an opposition. But they can't really articulate any kind of meaningful alternative to what the Republicans have to offer. So what they do is they basically just squat in that opposition place and wait for the Republicans to fuck up so badly that people have to turn somewhere else. And then they do. They get in office. They don't do shit. And then that basically just sets things up for the next, you know, right-wing resurgence.
1: Yep. And this is, like, I don't know. This is why we need, I don't know, like, another party. Like... Mm-hmm. Even if it was just a social democratic labor party, it would still improve the situation, I think.
0: Well, and I kind of wonder, like, what's, you know, because in terms of mainstream politics, the only person who's come close to articulating this or doing anything with this has been Bernie Sanders. But he's been completely, so far, been unwilling to leave the democratic tent in spite of the repeated, like, humiliations visited upon him, in spite of the fact that it came out that they you know rigged the primaries against him in spite of everything he stays within this tent because he has this idea that he's going to reform it but what do we think are the actual prospects for that happening
2: the process um,
0: i
1: think it's impossible like, they're just too embedded in financial interests it's like i mean it's the democrats and republicans i almost look at them as like two factions of the same party in a way but like <clears throat> represent different factions like different like factions of capital within the take parties too, but like I just can't see the Democrats ever becoming anything more than like what you described, that squatter party. Like if the range of political opportunities like possibilities is going to be like broadened in the United States. It's going to require the Democratic Party diet So,
0: basically. But maybe maybe we can try and like play kind of I don't know uh tabletop strategy for a second and like okay like let's say let's say we agreed with like bernie's like thing like what what would he have to do to actually like reform the democratic party and make it into what he says he wants it to be i
1: mean i don't even know where to start. it just seems well, so
2: yeah, yeah. I, mean, it's I, I i agree i agree with the so far it seems structurally impossible but I, I want to push back on the idea that the democrats and republicans are just factions of capital obviously i think it's true um but it's important to see how their differences and the dynamism between them create like a sort of you know more or less stable whole over the years and um one of the important interesting things that's happening with the trump presidency is a shift potentially from neoliberalism to a kind of uh neoprotectionism or something along these lines a sort of uh, i'm not sure how seriously to take his idea of putting up tariffs and trying to, you know, reshore jobs. I mean, the man has said everything, so <laughs> I, I'm hesitant to take his word for some of the things. I mean, there's some obvious things he's going yeah. to do. He's he's already co- repealing Obamacare. He has executive authority to make immigrants' lives hell. I mean, I'm sure he will. Um, th- this is this might be a moment where there there may actually end up being a difference between. The Republicans and Democrats on an economic front, because to be clear, on a social and cultural front, you know, uh, if you're a you know, trans person or something, it's like there's a difference. Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Um, yeah. But economically speaking, we might we might be seeing economic populism from the right. We might be seeing opposition to neoliberalism from the right, which will draw out what, what the problem with framing everything anti, framing everything in opposition to the current yeah, order. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, it makes it so that you, it makes having positive politics more important than ever because all of the negativity towards capital is, like, for the right. So, yeah. like, you, it makes, you know, having a positive program and having an alternative that you actually are affirming more important than ever.
0: Well, and that's the thing, like, you know, the right has been able to articulate alternatives to neoliberalism or at least suedo-alternatives right but yeah. the left has at least whenever they get power like the perfect example of this is Syriza in Greece they're just not willing to pull the trigger on what would be necessary to really you know oppose global capitalism like they they yeah. buy into the sort of neoliberal consensus more so than anyone
2: yeah let's talk about that because what if Trump attempts you know like white socialism in one country and like Like, let's, I'm total, you know, total bonger scenario here. But, like, Mm -hmm. really, what if Trump, as an individual agent, (laughs) can shake up American economic policy in order to protect American jobs for a certain slice of the population? Like, doing, you know, what some people call zombie social democracy, or, like, you know, obviously this is a highly racist form of it. Um, well, like it would just be business. like it would just be like corporatism, basically. Yeah, but like, what if he does this? This is something that the left thinks is structurally impossible, even if they think favorably of social democracy that has that you know weird tension with immigration.
0: If you look at like the actual plans that are shaping up, he doesn't really actually break out of neoliberalism. A good deal of his like infrastructural reinvestment is actually just like privatization. Because it
2: it it, it
0: can, yeah. Well, it's it consists of basically um, uh, giving out basically taking bids to like repair or build new infrastructure. Uh, Like if you build a new, if they want to build a bridge or a toll or something or a road or something, they'll put a toll on it, and then they'll basically uh, give a huge tax cut, which is basically free money to the company who Mm -hmm. takes the bid to build it, and then the company gets to keep the revenue from the tolls henceforth. So it's really like a privatization Mm -hmm. scheme. So yeah. the infrastructural development.
2: Likely.
0: Well, the infrastructure, and that's his stated plan. Like, so the infrastructural development that he's talking about isn't like, say, what they're doing in China, uh, not, mm-hmm. ne- neither on the same scale nor even the same thing. Because, like, in China, for instance, over the last ten years, they spent like eleven billion dollars on infrastructural development. Donald Trump is talking about like, oh no, sorry, I think eleven trillion, or was it billion? I forget. But Donald Trump was talking money. about. <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump was talking about like one. Like a like a like a tenth of that amount over for the next four years. And it's mainly through these privatization schemes, which is how he says he can keep a balanced budget while doing this. So mm-hmm. the it's like a it's not old school style, like Keynesian mm-hmm. economic stimulus. No.
1: Yeah, I think it's almost like a new phase of neoliberalism almost. Like we're seeing like first of all, it's like a right-wing neoliberalism. I think what kind of like what Hillary represented was left neoliberalism i think trump kind of represents like a right wing of it even if he kind of like build right. his campaign like as a anti-globalist or whatever i think once he's in power and once he's making policy it's going to be like a like a right-wing neoliberalism with, like is
2: know. Know, left neoliberalism like hillary clinton is maybe centrist neoliberalism
1: yeah yeah, yeah that makes sense so yeah i think it's it will be like a like a strengthening of like a right wing action of neoliberalism
0: well i think uh, I, my concern i mean uh, some of it Mike, the thing that's probably most likely to work in the reason that, like the stock markets are spiking right now is the tax cuts right which that can boost, mm. boost profits in the short term because you're basically giving people free money yeah. but it's not it's not going to guarantee reinvestment in the american economy for a variety of reasons Let's so what i isn't it didn't work for obama or or bush yeah so I think what it's gonna be is it's gonna be like a new form of branding essentially like look at like this carrier deal right like economically it makes no sense because the amount of tax breaks that they gave them per job saved they could have just paid like six figures to each worker every year to not do anything you know like the, so but it looks great on pay on like you know news headlines and so forth and they go, look, I'm saving jobs I brought jobs back right same same thing with like this auto stuff like uh, there were a lot of there were a variety of factors behind the different automakers like bringing the jobs back but they timed it well because it you know it gets them some political favor with the white house which as we saw with the obama bailouts of detroit that matters so yeah yeah so it, it's it's going to be kind of it's going to just be like a sort of a lot of like fake measures that really look good on tv but don't actually address like the fundamental problems
2: even the obama uh, interventions into uh, general motors Came with a deep, well, a deeper restructuring uh, of General Motors uh, labor uh, relations. Um, I, I don't oh, have yeah. the exact figures. on mean, I think I think their benefit or their uh, overall, you know, you know, social wage going to them ended up being cut by half, something like this. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the figure, but it was an intense restructuring that yeah. was certainly in line with neoliberalism, despite the fact that this was some, you know it might be called the government takeover yeah Yeah.
1: like i think what we're i think like trump kind of is he was more corporatist at campaigning and he actually like is going to be as a policymaker that's likely yeah and i think like a lot of people are going to be pissed when they realize like well first of all jobs aren't going to come back like no matter who's president because first of all like seventy five percent of job loss is due to automation and then yeah, the other twenty five percent is you know due to offshoring. But like those dynamics aren't going to go away. You know, Trump can't make those dynamics go away unless he nationalizes a bunch of stuff and really like makes a radical change in the US economy. And he doesn't mm-hmm.
2: he's not gonna do that. <laughs> How seriously do you take his prospect of putting up tariffs to protect American industries?
1: I don't think American industries will want it and I think you'll see capital flight in response to it if he actually does. Like I don't think he'll actually pull through with it. Like a sixty percent tariff on China, which is like one of the things I've heard him like suggesting. Like I just I, that would be bad for, you know, the US national capital and for Chinese capital. And
2: it's It is hard to see how he would have to get the political will from, you know, two parties that have been colluding in neoliberalism for how long. Every every
1: politician has been promising more jobs, more jobs. Like, every campaign, it's, like, a big competition to see, like, who is going to, like, who can, like, promise more jobs to come back.
0: Well, and all he has to do in terms of optics is just, like, tear up NAFTA, flush TPP, and even if the agreement that he makes is shittier, he because it's different, he can argue that's better, right? You go, those old agreements, they were no good. Disagreement, it's good because I do good deals and it's good.
2: Yeah, it could be quite similar. And I, I think, you know, entertaining the idea that Trump is really just a neoliberal that kind of did an inverted Obama campaign, it, his campaign was vaguely fascist in the way that Obama's campaign was vaguely kind of like, oh, this Socialism. is vaguely socialist, you know? Like, it, yeah. yeah. Because Obama ran
1: as an anti-war, semi-socialist candidate, you know. He kind of was yeah. a Bernie Sanders-type Democrat. As least, he, as I they said remember. more and more
0: that he was a socialist, he went up in the polls. And that's why I voted for him. I thought, oh, maybe he was like a Muslim socialist, whatever, you know. like So, yeah, like that was – it was like fake socialism versus like fake fascism, you know. Um you mentioned earlier talking about like how automation like compromises uh, comprises like seventy five percent of like redundancies, and I think that's actually kind of like a big thing that is definitely like under remarked upon about like Trump's economic program because he could get the factories back here, but they wouldn't necessarily like bring the jobs with them, right?
1: Yeah, and... exactly. Because like the technological level we have, oh yeah, it's it's just like yeah. t- factories are so much less labor intensive. Like my uncle works in a car factory. And he says that, like, it's basically just him, like, doing a job that, like, it would take, like, 20 people in China to do their level of technology.
0: And, well, I feel like this is kind of where he's most vulnerable, right? Because Trump appealed to, like, this economic populism. But if, like, jobs start to come back, uh, in order to keep them from being, like, automated, he's going to have to drive down wages. (laughs) And that's something that he's never really, like, addressed uh openly within his campaign like his stance on on wages and so forth yeah. so and mm. you know if somehow even if you were able to bring the jobs back that would probably be good news for us because you know it would basically expose his entire you know economic program as of you know completely useless for workers in the united states and it would go back to how you know the fundamental problem is you know wages and work hours and that's kind of the main place for you know, struggle needs to be defined,
2: because that's, you know,
0: that's where people are (laughs) getting
2: fucked, you know. I I do think there's good reason to think that he's not going to be able to bring the jobs back for structural reasons, and even if he does, uh, the automation will really, it's really going to put it's going to put a dent into any potential efforts. Yeah, Uh, like, it's
1: not going to get rid of the need, like, for the working class to fight for higher wages, and fight for better working conditions, and a less precarious existence, and it's, it's still it's, it's not going to stop those issues from coming to the fore like, it's not gonna destroy the labor movement I think
0: well and uh, yeah because like the for me like the biggest fear with of trump is that like his and I think a lot of liberals kind of secretly hold this is that his economic program will actually be successful and I think it might could could be in terms of juking up profits in the short term but in terms of actually like repairing the economy or meeting the needs of the people who, you know, flipped to help get him into office. Like it just isn't going to work.
1: Yeah, uh, like even if he's able to empower one section of the working class, it's going to be at the expense of the rest of the working class.
2: Yeah, but he promised yeah. that. He promised to do that. Um, so if he if he does accomplish that, uh, then you know he will have fulfilled a campaign promise. <laughs> well, he made he made the axis um,
0: like Ameri- the Americans first, right? But that's still a pretty big constituency. I mean, yeah, yeah, he he mean by American. (laughs) He definitely like scapegoat immigrants, and Uh you know, but you know, he still—I don't think he can even deliver to the constituency that he promised all that shit to.
2: Probably, you know what I mean. Probably not.
0: So, I I think that he's his his position. I think honestly, we might be looking at like the peak of his political efficacy right now in terms of (laughs) like all these like pre, you know, presidential deals that he cut. I mean, once he's there, he's going to kind of pretty much be subject to the will of Congress. So he's going to be passing a lot of like heinous, like ultra-conservative shit. But in terms of like, tr- in terms of like Trump time, like this is probably the peak for him. Interesting, I think.
2: Well, it is his first hundred days, so he's going to have to lay down his vision of America. Yeah.
1: I was listening to fucking Richard Spencer's podcast. Don't ask me why I was listening to it, But he actually said, like, yeah, like, I'm actually really skeptical about Trump. Like, if he doesn't, like, lay it out in the first 100 days, like, he's just going to be a lame duck president and like, another Well, has like, anybody a... looked
0: at his actual, like, plan for the first 100 days? Has anybody looked that over?
1: Yeah, it's honestly, like, really horrifying. But it's it yeah, seems, like, unrealistic. Quite horrifying.
0: But what's what's interesting about it is, like, the first thing is actually, like, setting term limits on congressmen. Yeah. Which I I but... feel like he could... <laughs> Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 I mean, that's,
0: that's actually probably the most politically progressive thing in his platform. But... It's the
1: only politically progressive I mean... thing in his platform. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, like, it's little, so unlikely to happen. We're likely to see the wall and see that happen. Like. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, you, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he actually fights for that or if it's something that, you know, was, I
2: don't know.
1: It was to add to his populist anti-corruption, you know. Yeah. Image.
2: Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, it's so the Republican Party has a- always done a better job at, you know, be- being a just Democratic centralist, you know, like <laughs> being yeah. able to, to uh, decide on a program and bind its members, unity in action, bind its members um, to actually acting on the program. I noticed this with a broken heart while dealing with the healthcare debate. Um, and watching the public option slip away because the Democrats can't handle being held to a program and have every incentive not to, really. Um, I think that's an interesting contrast, but I wonder how far that's gonna take Trump because on certain issues, uh, he's gonna be able to line up all the Republicans. On other issues, for instance, of um, term limits on Congress, like that's just, it's almost unthinkable. Like you'd have to shame his whole party and the whole other party. What's left? It's it's, it's interesting
0: because that's one of the, like the really actually popular things among his base too. So I wonder I wonder if you know they will be as like upset with I guess although liberals I guess weren't that upset when Obama abandoned the public option were they? Like many are still mm-hmm. you know decrying like the tragic loss of Obamacare.
2: Uh, so who yeah, knows? I, su- I suppose. Uh, like, okay. I togs won't, sh- won't shrug that much. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, do we want to start talking about uh, the inauguration events of today?
2: Did you see the first lady's powder blue suit? What? So Jackie Kennedy.
1: <laughs> no, all I saw was Richard Spencer getting punched in the face, which was <sighs> extremely entertaining. Lovely. I watched his speech, and it was really boring. Yeah.
2: yeah. We will it was bring just, back our jobs. We will bring back our borders. We will bring back our wealth. And we will bring back It, it
0: our- was literally just all of his it was literally like all of his slogans just kind of strung together. Like for 15 minutes. Like it was like the closest thing I've seen politically to like an ACDC concert. It's <laughs> like I'm just gonna bring out the hits, you know, nothing else.
2: Get <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <know. laughs>
1: yeah. His speech was it was just he uh, you know he, he says make america great again as you know, as you would expect him to it was just so predictable and just like i wanted him to just come out there and be like aha uh-huh, you're all a bunch of cucks i'm president now I'm coming <laughs> you over you don't even realize it but okay. like but like he didn't even do that like he didn't even make a dick joke like not even, he learn- even like,
2: uh.
1: like he could have at least made it funny Like it could at least been funny, but no. Like we
0: didn't even get that. Well, I did like. I actually did laugh at the part where he was like, "And I want to thank the number one person. I want to thank God, right? (laughs) Only only Trump could like stop and like thank God and just be completely arrogant about it, you know? (laughs) Like he's like he's like shooting a shout out to like his man or whatever. Like, hey, yeah, you know. He almost. I mean, he almost sounded sarcastic. Yeah,
2: I mean, I wonder how how many times he he said the the word God. Does he say the word God often in his life? Do you think? Do you think he thinks a lot about a... God? Oh no, he's
1: he's a complete like New York liberal like. He, yeah, he's...
0: it's yeah. yeah it was like... like it was like the time at, like the RNC where he went. Um, and I'm just glad that I will present the I will pr- protect the LGBTQ community <laughs> from hateful religious extremists. You know, like. Yeah, it's just it's like the can thing. Like it's basically like Mike Pence like slipped that into his notes, and was like you gotta you gotta short things up, Donald. You gotta
2: you gotta do it. <coughs> I was gonna say, yeah. But uh,
0: one thing I was watching because I, I also you know I watched some of like Democracy Now' coverage, and I watched some random like riot porn on YouTube. And but I, and when I was doing that, I found like uh, footage from Bush's inauguration, kind of like a compilation of stuff, and it was pretty much the exact same thing. Like there were literally signs where it was kind of like not my president. There was mm-hmm. people, you know, it was the same kind of weather. Uh, people were pissed. Like it was, it was, it was kind of the exact there was a black block. Uh, I don't know if there was a black block. Uh, it was rowdy, but I, didn't, I don't There was. I don't think anybody fucked up a Starbucks, but maybe they did. It was in a compilation, but yeah. this. Is, but this. The thing is, this is my nightmare because I'm young enough to remember, like the the. Bush years and to remember John Kerry and the anti-war oh, yeah. movement and all that shit. And I'm really concerned that we're just going to live through, you know, another version of that.
1: Yeah, me too. Cause I remember it. And honestly, like I was radicalized during those years. Like mm-hmm. it was the anti-war movement that radicalized me. Yeah. But like at the same I, time, like what came of it, very little came of it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's, And, I mean, I'm because we've been seeing, you know, at CLT, like, more people coming to meetings and stuff like that. And it reminds me of what, talking to, like, older activists, you know, they talked about they got the same thing with, like, the war and, like, the Bush years. They got, like, this bump in terms of participation Mm -hmm. and membership and so forth. And then as soon as Obama got elected, all that shit went away.
1: I mean, I think we just need to educate people really well when they come to us so they know that, like... This is not just about Trump. Because we really have to avoid falling into that mentality that this is just about, like, we're fighting Trump. We're, you know, we got to can't organize against Trump. We got to say, like, no, we're not organized against Trump. We're organizing against the capitalist class. And Trump is just who happens to be the leader of the capitalist class right now. In America. Right.
0: Well, and I want to think that on some level, at least, there is some kind of memory, <laughs> like, within the left. Like, to, to me, like, Bernie Sanders. You know, and you know, I wrote articles critiquing him, and you know, I got plenty to say about that. But it it does represent some kind of progress in terms of the fact that he didn't completely freak out when people said he was a socialist. You know, he's had good things to say about Scandinavia. You know, he was talking about single payer health care, and he was serious about it. And the enthusiasm for that, I think, is a definite improvement on Obama, and certainly an improvement on the Clinton years and John Kerry and all that shit politically. So I like to think that we've made some kind of like at least ideological progress in terms of, you know, people's consciousness and so forth. You know, so according to polls, like socialism and communism are no longer the dirty words that they used to be. But I feel that my concern is like in the next few years, like we're just going to see like a totalized like repeat of like the same exact politics we had like circa, you know, 2002 to 2006.
2: Yeah. And we really have to avoid that, you know. Yeah, it is possible that we've had enough um, people, you know, I don't want to say cadre, but just people that have, like, been around the block a couple times through the mass participation in Occupy, through, you know, even, yeah, people who remember the anti-war movement. I mean, I remember the anti-war movement. I wasn't involved in it, but I fucking remember it. It sure was depressing.
0: Or even just the internet, I guess, is, you know, in terms of its ability to Mm. change information and, you know, give people more access, because... You know, it w- There was the internet, obviously, back during the Bush era, but the amount of data and the amount of like stuff you had access to on it, you know, wasn't nearly as extensive for research purposes or education or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, but what about Occupy? How does that fit into this? Because Occupy happened during Obama's presidency, and it happened after the anti-war movement.
0: Mm-hmm. And well, in some ways, was, like. Occup- it ha-
1: it ha- it kind of was an improvement over what happened before as well if you think about it yeah. like in relative terms
0: the closest analog i guess you could point to was like uh the anti-globalization movement like in the late clinton years Yeah. because that was a, that was uh you know again under like a democratic presidency and that was you know had some like at least nominally anti-capitalist elements i think occupy was a subtle improvement on that but there were a lot of like in a lot of ways, Occupy was, like, the last stand of the anti-globalization movement. Um, like, all the people who were up for that old stuff came back for for Occupy.
2: Yeah. Honestly, uh, what I started feeling during Occupy is that perhaps this is sort of the, the, the beginning of, like, the exposure of kind of ultra-left and, like, maybe, like, some post-left ideas, in, in a way, and sort of the end as well. Like, this is sort of a an attempted implementation and a fragmentation of a kind of decentralized, non-hierarchical, no leaders, no program, you know, kind of uh, non-politic. That honestly, like the new, you know, it It was worth
1: It was kind of what (laughs) communizers want. It was almost like communization, like attempted in
2: practice. Well, at Occupy Oakland, I mean, and, and, uh, Occupy UC Davis, which I was... You mean the Oakland in. Commune. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I mean, yo, know, if you think the Oakland Commune isn't serious, you should have seen the Davis Commune, okay? Like, <laughs> like Davis, if you walk into Davis, it looks like, I don't know, I'm from Connecticut. It looks like, like, Connecticut with, you know, farms and shit. Like, and you, people were trying to incorporate, like, you know, smashy, smashy, like, vaguely communizer-inspired, like, reading endnotes but thinking to Kun. God. Damn, that shit was confusing. Yeah, I remember I, back in the Occupy days,
1: I met Jake because we were both into the Situationists. Hmm. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, if we think um, back to the Situationists. Yeah. Like what I were- do. I
0: do have this like recurrent nightmare that like uh, this stuff is cyclical too, because I've noticed this with like identity politics as well. Um, cause I remember like late in the Clinton years too, like that was like, poli- that was the other big wave of like political correctness. So it's almost like when leftists dis- discover that having like Democrats in power doesn't get them shit rather than confront it directly. They kind of retreat into like personal and like cultural concerns and try to like, you know, change the consciousness of people without like affecting like the material base of society. Yeah, I mean, there has been progress with that over time, because we're obviously further along in, in political correctness and identity politics than we were in, like, the late 90s. But Obama, I'm concerned that, like, in, in terms of, like, a more direct political level, like, we're almost, like, living through, like, these cycles.
2: Well, Obama proved to a lot of people that having a black leader doesn't necessarily mean black people are going to be all right. And that's but Clinton was a black point.
0: president too. He went on Arsenio Hall and played the saxophone. I mean, yeah, yeah. Right, it's as okay, black as Tony it gets. Morrison.
2: I bet you Tony Morrison <laughs> pressed the shit out of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, Bill Super Predator Clinton. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, like, but no, seriously. Um, black Lives Matter happened under a black president, and that that shows a kind of fragmentation that a Marxist could recognize from from you know a- a- any instance in. History, where a political movement will fragment along class lines to a certain degree, but also in a funny way, it's almost like the history of the workers' movement when you s- started to see things fracture along racial lines. It's a sort of the, an inverted version of this. Like you, you, Barack Obama achieved the highest office in the world, more or less, and you can't get much higher than that. And majority of black people are still in the same goddamn situation
0: they're worse actually in pretty much every economic indicator
2: yeah mm. and the republicans obviously use that to
1: try to you know be like, oh well if we were you know cutting all that welfare things would be better
2: well yeah i mean also I, I just want to point out that you know people use uh fragment fragmentation and like class division within the black community to justify being racist no you know it's it's and to excuse white white supremacy is from being like the main thing antagonizing uh, black people in a, in a racial way. Like it's not like simply internal oppression, obviously. No, Obama just makes this an an important thing for for people to talk and think about. And it might not be happening publicly because people I don't know a lot of, a lot of people for good reasons don't want to talk smack about Obama in public. But they're having those conversations beyond closed doors with people they trust. Um, and unfortunately, if we had a, a woman president, you know, maybe that maybe that conversation could have been had again <laughs> within a feminist context. But you're going to have people pulling for the woman president that's going to make it all better for for a while now.
1: Yeah, that's I almost like that's almost why I sort of wanted Hillary to win just so we could finally like put neoliberal feminism like to grave <laughs> that's being too optimistic because of course you was you know people you would think that like black like you know the kind of black democratic managerial like reformist politics would die after obama but it's obviously not dead so. hence
2: the anti-fascist front right yeah to, to pa- panic you out of a, a rational decision like
1: yeah well i uh... The idea about there is an Antifa in the United States is kind of just ridiculous. Like, what's defined as Antifa is just simply, like, random mobs of students.
2: That well, are I, I didn't even mean like literally, like, Antifa as in terms of the groups. But I just mean that all the rhetoric is, you know, 1930s popular front rhetoric. Um, yeah. Like, everybody sounds like the CPUSA's party line right now. You know, we we need a, a popular front against the fascist hard right. Like, yeah, yeah, that's
1: what I that's what I mean by saying like we can't fall into this anti-Trump like mentality. Like, we have yeah. to, we can't just be like organizing against Trump. You know, we can't yeah, just yeah fall obviously into we're, that because of the the, yeah, the, the, obviously it. we're against Trump,
2: but that's really not the point. We're for something more importantly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's what
0: that's what's so ridiculous about like, this air quotes the resistance. Like cuz like the problem with resistance is that it doesn't pose an alternative. It's just literally resistance. Now, that makes sense when, you know, let's say your country's occupied by Nazi Germany and you can't have open politics because they'll take you out in the street and shoot you in the head, right? But yeah. We're not in that moment. Things aren't that bad. We can stop and think. We can openly debate We can have a conversation. So, just acting like being the resistance is good enough or an adequate or even appropriate response to Donald Trump is just delusional thinking and completely counterproductive to any kind of developing any kind of real response to the situation that got us here. I mean,
2: yeah, but this is going to be a moment of pretty large popular uh, mobilization, pretty large mobilization. Of people that probably wouldn't normally go out to a protest and not that going to a protest is necessarily constructive but the fact that people are even going through the motions is an important step Um, there's gonna be more people mobilized about this just because of the kind of culture war um, you know polarized kind of fragmentation element and like how many people are like so militantly against Trump despite the fact I mean, they're not, you know, they're doing, I don't know, they're not doing the kind of analysis that we take seriously, but they're getting out there. Um, And in a kind of like incremental, you know, Bernie Sanders way, I mean, I think people being upset about Trump is a potential thing that could walk them towards a broader, more systemic analysis, but... That wouldn't mean us pandering to being anti-Trump. Yeah, I mean, they'll be mobilized,
0: but mobilized to do what? You know? To and vote for the to, Democrats. Yeah, I mean,
2: years. well,
1: we have to, because the thing is, like, people are going to have to fight for higher wages and things like that. There's going to be political struggles that arise out of this. Like, the police are going to become more brutal. Like, there's going to be a lot of stuff, like, there's going to be a lot of stuff to resist that Trump is going to do. We need to relate to these things in a way that directs them as a struggle against the capitalist system, and not a struggle just against Trump.
0: But you know, you can't—you can't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? Trump <laughs> has like all like capital has all these political forms and organizations that it can use to get what it wants. Uh, the proletariat right now doesn't have them. They or if they do, they're not small enough to really meet on like the stage of history in any kind of like meaningful confrontation. Not so
1: not big yeah, enough, if,
0: yeah, if we want to if we want to fight, we need to build we need to forge the weapon to actually fight and win. Like we're not even at the stage where we're capable of actually like effectively resisting Trump. Like yeah. What resistance means is basically it's just a form of consumerism. It's just mm. atomized individuals looking for things like okay, what do I buy? Or not by who do I vote for? Who do I tweet at? Like, and oh. I've I've been to like I've been to anti-Trump meetings, and this is what people want. And I've been trying sure. to explain to people we need actually like collective institutions and organizations that are capable of actual organizing and creating a force that can act politically.
2: I I want to push back on this. I don't think I think consumerism is is too reductive. There is an element of this ethical consumerism involved, but. I think um, kind of perversely, the idea of resistance gives a kind of radical affect and disruption of everyday life that we can trace back maybe to like the situationists, you know, like this kind of rupture with everyday life and this, you know, seeing uh, so many people in one place. Um, I'm not saying that makes it really any more radical. In fact, it kind of shows how subsumed some very radical feeling and transformative, you know, potentially transformative things. How subsumed these things are, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little more than that. Like resistance has a whole aesthetic flair. That that um, I don't know. I think there's a weird irrational undertow there that is what probably drew us into politics somehow. Yeah, but it's all like a it's all like a smokescreen, though. <laughs> that's, yeah. That,
0: that's that's why. Because again, I sort of I cut my teeth in activism doing Occupy stuff. And I basically spent a year doing it, which is a hell of a lot longer than most people stuck around. And it it took me like a year of like banging my head against the wall going, you know, this isn't working to sort of begin to be able to see like the problems of like Mm -hmm. activism. Like how many of these, how many of these noobs who come out like to be a part of the resistance, you know, are actually gonna do more than like take selfies and go home like how many of them are actually going to like stick around and try to learn the lessons of history and you know, even of the present. To... I, I,
2: I don't know, Jake, but the, I think the point is.
0: No, I yeah. want you to answer me right now. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm no,
2: no, 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 no. But like, no, seriously, I, I think the point is, is that we can't just assume off the bat, there's going to be like worthless drones that are just going to, you know, engage with this in the lowest common denominator way. We, ha- we can't just assume they're going to be, you know, plebs, right? I mean, this is a, problematic assumption, we have to kind of go in there in some way, patiently explain to people. (laughs) I mean, maybe not we, but certainly an organized socialist formation that one day we could hopefully be a part of, like, that would be a role, (laughs) that would be a really important place to put um, socialists, uh, because there are people that are being activated now that will do the harder work. We'll dig into theory. We'll be frustrated. We'll see the yeah. the futility of, of you know quote resistance, and we'll get angered that in four years people voted for Democrats again, and I can't believe the Democrats chose them, and I can't believe Trump has another four t- years. you know, like
1: yeah, but I think what it, Jake I think people. Jake is making an important point that like in I the understand. left you have this fetishization of mass action where if we just get enough people out in the streets and fighting, they're all going to like eventually become radicalized by the gravity of mass action itself like you see this kind of this kind of comes from council communism like if we get enough workers on strike in the streets eventually they'll form workers councils and those councils will like become communism or whatever like, well, yeah that's 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 an you, it's, important it's obviously an absurd proposition and like sure, the thing is the position. left is still in that mentality where it's like we just need to get as many people out and protest it's going down you know we need to have a general strike or whatever we just need to get as many people in the street and even if we're fighting for a completely moderate like small reformist demands as long as our actions are like militant and we're like really you know hardcore about it like people will like their consciousness will wake up but really, like it's it's there's a very important role for organized communists to patiently educate and organize yes. people and build up their forces. And that's see, what the guff is kind of missing right now, is that is that right. Kotskian strategy of patience.
2: Right. That see that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's it's going down. I'm saying patiently explain. I'm saying that this is the role for, you know, the fucking nerds getting high in their rooms, high like me. Um <laughs> You know, in, instead of just doing that, instead of just reading, you know, look, I love reading, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, if if we fancy ourselves to be serious socialists, we should probably find each other and try try to try to do that. Well, um, and locally, locally, I and
0: some of us have actually been like talking to people, you know, talking to noobs and trying to reach out to people who are becoming, you know, I guess radicalized by the current situation. So some of this is just me voicing my frustrations with, mm. you know, when people hear me give a speech and then don't immediately immediately become historical materialists, you know, it's a little discouraging.
1: <laughs> well, Poor I you. mean, honestly like I'll say a lot of the a lot of the you know, people who have been coming to us lately, like, they have been pretty impressive in their knowledge and whatnot. So I think like just because we're communists, we're going to attract the more like radicalized people, all who people who are kind of radicalized already and are you know not just are looking for something more than just fighting Trump? You know, because if you want to just fight Trump, like, well, you know, it's he's going, going down. down. You know, it's going there's, down, man. It's there's, going there's plenty down. of There's plenty of like Democratic like front groups you can do. You know, like, yeah. but we're the communists, and I think the people who are going to come to us are going to be the ones who do have like a more radical like consciousness already. Now,
2: but, I think, uh, and I, I also don't think there's anything wrong with um. If you do it, you know, if you do it in the right way, soliciting, you know, interest in your grouping. I mean, that's not generally how I do it. You know, I run a meeting group and it's, you know, pretty much by interest and not, you know, I don't go, like, looking for people to invite. You know, if I was doing a more remotely serious political operation. (laughs) Um, Going to one of these huge fucking things where, like, let's say it's one of the more militant, um, you know, anti-cop, like, situations. Just being a party showing up with literature and a bunch of bottles of water. I mean, you know, there's there's some there's something there like yeah. being kind of like, look, we're on your side even though you're doing illegal shit. But, but yeah, we're we're, right. we're not going to do this with you and we're going to and you know, we're trying going to talk to you and but you know, obviously like honestly like we don't think this is the best idea but not because we think you're morally wrong in a way we think you're very morally right. But um I don't know. Being able to express that That kind of resonance, like uh, political resonance in a more abstract sense, and try to articulate, look, I'm not saying don't be angry. I'm just saying your white hot rage can make you <laughs> counterproductive and you need a cool, calm burn. <laughs> you need a cold, rational burn. Yeah. That's h- how effective rage will work <laughs> i' I've, I've yeah, because i've I've hung around, you know.
0: Loosely around like activist circles, at least in Tampa, since Occupy, and I've seen like three or four cycles of people coming in and out, and I've seen like the cycle of burnout and like how quickly like turnover exists within activism, and that's due to like a lot of different structural dynamics.
1: At the same time, though, like during this entire like array of like the people, me, you, and Nick, and like most of the people in CL, have like stuck together and kept together, even if there's been. Periods are basically all we did was to read stuff and talk about it. <laughs> you know, the, the the people are you know, the, the, the will still you know the people that really like are going to matter and become you know potential leaders of the class are going to stick together. You know,
0: during right, well- periods. Well, we stuck. Well, we stuck together because what we did was enjoyable and pr- pretty low stakes, you know. Yeah. Like it wasn't. We weren't on. You know, we weren't on some kind of like we gotta do some shit right now, man. Kind of. Th- you know. Kind of trip where, that's. I mean, yeah. that's what leads to burnout, really. Is, yeah, that's
1: what I'm saying. Is like we yeah. need to like have that approach and be like, no, we do not need to do like everything possible. We need to be very smart about how we marshal our resources, and like what we can achieve. So and that doesn't mean so, we don't have to do nothing. We can still do things in the meantime, but like, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is to simply retreat and develop yourself and, you know, build yourself.
0: Yeah. Should we talk about the uh, general strike that they called for or somebody sure. called for?
1: Yeah. That was, I don't know, that like just pissed
2: me off. <laughs> well, so. Okay, on the one hand, I'm a pedant and, you know, like an intellectual, so they're using general strike in the wrong way. Her, her, her.
0: They are. I mean, they are.
2: They, it's a fact. It's a fact. Um, on the other hand, okay, there's a big, vague call to boycott on Inauguration Day. I want to, I guess, detach those phenomena just for a second because do we even think that there's there's something worth doing in a big kind of – cultural and even labor boycott potential labor boycott depending on who you are on inauguration day like aside from the fact that they misused the word general strike which you know grinds all of our gears I'm sure you know if you
0: if you could what do, do you it think? on a big enough level yes but that was never gonna happen.
2: Right. But I'm saying as is as is not like as we would have it but the the, no. the actual action as is.
0: There I think there is literally no value <laughs> if anything if anything i think it's negative because no i mean i don't think your concern is merely i don't think your concern is merely pedantic you know you gain credibility politically by being capable of executing what you say you can execute so if you go out and say we're gonna have a general strike and literally nobody does it except some dock workers in oakland like you that's you don't have any credibility like Mm. period so
2: it just makes you look dumb, and so I I don't I don't think everyone is like oh but a general strike according to the Marxist handbook a general strike is I I don't, I don't think that's what most people are doing I think people just but then it here that's
0: that's bad education oh, actually, then because it makes people think like a general strike is like I didn't buy you know I didn't buy groceries today I'm on general strike you know what I mean like
2: sure sure but okay I I have a kind of local example I'm not going to name names but. I think it's interesting. Um, recently, there was a sort of um, there was a hunger strike at a at a state institution around here, and um, it was called a hunger strike. and if you call something a hunger strike, it implies the threat of of death of of not consuming anything. <laughs> Lo and behold, um, i i I got from sources that were close to the strikers that they were. Drinking coconut water and they had broth now. I don't actually want anybody to die or to even threaten their lives that that way I you know, but um They're misrepresenting themselves but um There was an incident that happened and they got their demands met not while they were still there But retroactively so in a weird way they were kind of effective Um, and then what happened was somebody at SFSU San Francisco State University picked up on the tactic, and there was some dispute with uh, there I think they were going to close down the ethnic studies apartment. maybe my facts are all wrong um, but the point is they employed a similar tactic and it worked and I, I, I don't know if it was a hunger strike was it a hunger strike In both cases it's you know really arguable that it was it was you know not quite that um, but if there was something effective about it then I, I I hesitate to be too prescriptivist about this. Uh, that's a term from linguistics, like getting all mad that literally doesn't mean, you know, in reality or something. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, if there's a useful phenomenon, I don't care if people articulate it in a messy way. See, but, like, I don't see the useful phenomenon. That's, imp- that's the important point.
1: Because, like, no matter what, people are going to protest today. Like protesting has kind of been normalized in the United States at this point, ever since Occupy, Black Lives Matter. At this point, so like protesting, you know, it's, it's, it's normalized in the U.S. So there are going to be protests today anyway. That's not the same as a stoppage of work. Like an actual general strike, and it's, you're right, I am using the word general strike and it's literal meaning, but even like a mass strike would have been like a massive accomplishment, but even then it
2: didn't happen. I, General that sure is happening.
1: Yeah, but it's just like when you know that it can't happen, but you call for it anyway, out of hopes that like spontaneity will like fill in the blanks for you. I feel like that's a a very bad strategy. It reveals your weakness, and it's- that's why I'm glad the IWW didn't officially endorse it because if they did, it would have been, it would just it would have been a sign of weakness. Unfortunately, yeah. like, tons of rogue IWW members did, like, make, like, you know, IWW, like, posters calling for a general strike. But, like, the actual union, we, like, never endorsed it officially, which I'm glad because we don't have the organizational capacity to launch a general strike. I don't know. Like, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an individualistic way of of looking at politics, too. It's like, well, I didn't go to work today. I called in six, so I partook in the general strike. It takes out, like, the whole process of, like, association and collective action that, like, makes the general strike a meaningful thing. Of course. I don't
2: know. I I, I don't want to get too hung up on that because I feel like – I mean, I understand why a union like the IWW that participated in real-ass general strikes, I mean, you know, at least by name, right? Uh, by organization whatever um why they wouldn't want to endorse uh, this fake general strike um and partially because it's irresponsibly named but i mean the, the, the tactic is ineffective on its own i think the highly perverse thing about calling it a strike is where is what you're kind of saying donald is that it's a highly atomized individualized thing um but you know like on on the other hand atomized, individualized action is kind of where people are right now. I guess that's the thing that really makes it absurd to call it a strike, is that it's it's yeah. not like people are organized and together. But and I, like, I just think that points to the problem of the age so would, well. like
1: It's always like, oh, something bad happened. Like, we're going to call for a general strike, and then, like, a bunch of leftists get really excited, and nothing happens, because it's just an empty call for direct action.
0: Yeah. I remember, I remember like, a, I don't know, I guess it was maybe... December, i was like sitting in a sort of tr- trump speak out and i was listening to like all the ideas that people were putting forward and it was like a lot of like individualistic stuff like that and like in my head like i just started to hear like the adam curtis like voiceover going and the activists turn to individual solutions unable to organize in a collective way due to you know blah 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 blah, blah. and like i you know like just like adam curtis is like whole because like i watched hyper normalization shortly after it came out, and so like his whole critique of like, you know, atomized like sort of individualism as being like a sort of impediment to any kind of real political efficacy, especially for the left, is really in my head and kind of bothering me, like in a big way.
2: I just sort of feel like it's like, I don't know, it's like blaming someone for being a millennial. Kind of not your fault. (laughs) That's like all that's available to you. Like... This is I, I when I look at like one of those rational choice squares. A lot of a lot of Marxists hate the rational choice squares because you know, oh, it it reifies the bourgeois individual. When I look at the rational choice squares, I say to myself, this is how people think today. People like a lot of times people do feel like that they're completely alone and all they have are incentives. Like I mean, it's not how mm-hmm. all people think, honestly. Um, but I don't know. I think it's useful Power to kind of be like this is our starting point we live in a pretty like atomized yeah. place
1: and i think what we can do is we can point to collective action when it works we can fight for collective action as a solution to problems and support people in collective action which is kind of what we've been trying to do with food not bombs lately in tampa mm. but there's 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 still you know it's it's there's going to be a large hurdle of kind of atomized liberal individualism to come over and in a way like i don't know herbert Marcuse talks about this like in a way like for example if you want to do something as simple as starting a union you have to kind of hurdle that individual rational choice and have some kind of greater cause that inspires you to do it like something of cooperation yeah there has to be a greater like yeah exactly a greater spirit of cooperation or almost like a greater ideal that makes you transcend, like this kind of homo economist mindset of, oh, well, how can I just get mine as fast as possible? Now, I don't think anyone really knows the secret to how that mindset is uh, created, but I think it's an important part of it. Yeah, uh, or um, it's an
2: important part of a radical politics. Well, it's kind of making a wager. A book that I really like um, is is that touches on this subject. Is it's you know. It's kind of like a uh, left sociobiology, it's a strange book. It's by two ex-Marxist economists, uh, Samuel Bowles and Herbert Gintis. I think they uh, run uh, the Union for Radical Political Economy. Um, or they run, I think they're like, the I don't know, one of them's like the president of it. I, I, I don't know. Um, they wrote a book called A Cooperative Species, and the whole thing was an attempt to explain, um, basically explain altruism in a non-reducible way. Like, you know, there is, like, reciprocal, like, self-interest, but that doesn't count as altruism, and there's still altruism in, in the human species, and we have a, it's, it's, it's very interesting, because these are two analytical, analytical Marxists that fell off the wagon, <laughs> you know, they're not Marxists anymore, and, and but they're still, they still have that Marxian spirit, and, like, mining, yeah. it, like, an empirical and rationalistic anthropology to try to, Get at the cooperative spirit of humanity. I mean, despite the fact that they think that you know people are quite capable of being extremely cruel, and, and you know, and all all the other standard stuff, their mo- their model is pretty is is pretty interesting, pretty good. What what they theorize is that there's um people hate free riders. People hate the idea that that someone is not giving back. that, e- that you, everyone's giving. You're giving, I'm giving, but this person's—they're not giving, and they're getting. You know, like people don't like this. People across cultures don't like this. Like,
0: yeah, that sounds intuitively correct.
2: Like, um, and and so the way that people wield something like xenophobia, like, is—I think it does tap at a, a hook in human nature. I know that sounds very bourgeois. But I, I think I, I do think that that's, this is true. I think this yeah. is what was good about the old socialist politic. That was like these these capitalists. you know they're there's something wrong with what they're doing. Like even yeah. even though there was a tendency to personalize it, making it about the people. Person you know like there's still something important about that. A lot of academics like to recall Carl Schmidt, but Carl Schmidt was just developing points by Lenin and removing the humanist horizon. <laughs>
0: no that's a good point uh you see that you see that too with um because a lot of times in order to sort of get people against welfare initiatives they drag up this image of people like cheating welfare you know like the welfare queens
2: welfare Uh, queens.
0: yeah and that's that's kind of what's necessary in order to convince people that you know assistance has to be reduced in some way
2: my my, my uncle thinks that like illegal immigrants can just get every kind of state service, yeah. That there is, like they don't even he doesn't even really know, like and but he just he is convinced of this, so he can maintain this free rider image of of immigrants and hate them. Hmm. It's it's just so disturbing to me. My you know, my uncle's like a labor guy, you know. So it's a, it's a well, one man. <laughs>
0: That is the hope because the thing is like, they're not just making this up themselves. They're getting it from somewhere. Someone's telling them this. Of course. So that's, there is, there is a kernel of hope in that, in that, you know, if we can counter that narrative and explain to people, you know, develop a different basis for solidarity and a different basis of opposition in terms of restoring people's idea of, I guess, an equitable or harmonious, you know, social body, you know, you can pose like an alternative politics against sort of the conservative uh, yeah, yeah. It's like
1: conservatism does draw on this collectivist urging in humans. I think. I think there. I think it's. A, I think there is like what Lexi was saying. There is kind of such thing as human nature, and there are like ways that politicians channel these, how politics channels these tendencies in human nature, and I think a lot of times when you see like, not, nationalism is like a way of kind of channeling people's desire for a collectivism. But in a in a negative way. Whereas communism would channel that desire for a collectivity, but in a positive way. So like a clock, it's really like, you know, the nationalists want a, a collectivity of their people, whereas we want a collectivity of all people. So it's we just need it's almost all it, almost like what we have to do is channel those energies in a different direction.
2: Yeah. It's uh, of course easier said than done, but I think um I think the kind of uh, class con, like kind of uh, cuts in the discourse and like kind of social reality that you know you tend to see, um, does it does broadly reflect an interesting fact about the contemporary like class composition is that the ultra rich who are the targets of the socialist movement, especially in the United States, they're they're not the most hated. The most hated are the Professional managerial, I hesitate to call them a class, but that's the terminology that
1: some, some of the best class.
2: some of the best theorists about this are using. They call it a class. We can call it a caste. I don't care. Yeah. Um, that's the main target of resentment, and there's a sense in which socialists can use this. There's a sense in which, especially, I see this as like a, a, a trans person and in, involving in like being involved in identity stuff, queer stuff this is this is an axis of class politics the professionalized nonprofit democratic party sector versus all the left-behinds in every community of identity that's something um, what, and all the people that are going to be rebuffed by Trump's failure to bring back the jobs you know all those people that are, are gonna you know that might have voted for Obama and and now voted for Trump and are realizing that, you know, Democrats and Republicans have, you know, betrayed them more or less, you know, it's, it's possible, like, it's possible that like, I I don't know, I guess, I guess Trump, Trump is a bit of an exception um, because he's kind of the upper strata that people like.
0: Well, some of that Uh, comes from just like his habits where um, someone else pointed this out um, that, he lived the way like he's, he's basically made his career projecting an image of what people think wealth is or how they imagine themselves, how they would be if they were wealthy. Like if, if someone's, he basically made a living be, pretending to be, or actually being novo rich. Right. So it's like, if so, you know, some hick was like, you know, if I win the lottery, I'd make everything gold. My wife would have huge knockers, you know, I'd, you know, I'd I'd fly in a helicopter everywhere I went and everyone would have to kiss my rings, motherfucker, you know, like that. And that's the image that he presents. You know, I'd fire people for being dumbasses. I'd tell them you're fired. Like, that's that's something that people can relate to. Like, they can't relate. They can't relate to, like, bloodless, you know, uh, aspish people like Mark Zuckerberg or dorks like Bill Gates or like austere people like Warren Buffett. Um, those are the people that people think they would relate to, but no, they relate to the one who would, who lives for them, their fantasies of wealth, you know? And so that's, yeah. that's how people can, that's how like poor people can relate to Trump. But the weekly worker actually had a pretty good piece where they talked about the resentment of like the professional managerial class. And what they said, a lot of that, what the author argued, a lot of that comes from is the fact that, that that's the upper strata that people come in contact with. Yes. Um, like, Dave Chappelle actually had a bit once where I saw where he goes, um, uh, You know, I talk a lot about white people, um, but I don't mean you guys. Like, you <laughs> understand, I made $50 million, and when you make enough money in America, they'll pull back the curtain and show you the real white people. Oh, you know? So, love it. So, the there's like an upper strata of people that most poor people never come in contact with, never see, that are completely behind the scenes. And so, yeah, they're not going to be able to resent those people because they can't really even conceptualize who those people are, you know, in their in their minds. Um, or they, they don't feel it in, like, a gut way. Whereas, you know, you've had to deal with some asshole lawyer. You've had to deal with some apple-polishing douchebag in your class. You had to deal with, like, the petty social climbers at your church who are always outwardly the nicest people, but behind the scenes are just the most bitchy, uh, throat-cutting, backstabbing assholes in the whole town, right? And so those people are Democrats <laughs> to a lot of to a lot of poor people, especially you know, yeah, people along that sort of like you know white nationalist uh, axis or whatever. So that's like a big part of it, and you know that's why. And the thing is, sort of like what you alluded to, those are the those are the kind of people that hijack social movements <laughs> because yeah, they. Eradicate them of class because ultimately they see social movements as ways for them to uh, advance themselves in their professional careers by opening things up to diversity and making more opportunities for people like themselves, not actually like raising the living standards of like oppressed peoples uh, as a whole. Right, that's like a cyclical problem. Like I was, I was watching Democracy Now today and I saw a, um, they went and interviewed Black Lives Matter, and one of them was talking about how. You know, white allies need to understand that they need to subordinate themselves to black leadership, you know, if they're going to help us in the struggle. And while that's certainly true, I'm pretty confident that the people who will end up being leaders in those struggles will not be from like the black lower class. It'll be sort of petty bourgeois and upwardly mobile strata. And that's where the real problem is going to come it's not going to come from like white people taking over black lives matter. It's going to come from the interclass problems within the black movement. That's going to, and you can see it already with stuff like this whole safety pin box and you know, just the kind of general political inertia or aimlessness that black lives matter has taken.
1: Yeah. Uh, kind of how the people that you know, you really hate are not, you know, some financier up in a, in a New York city building. But like your boss at work, like, or right. a social servant who um takes your, tries to take your kids away or whatever. You really like are directly oppressed by the managerial aspect of the cap of capitalism. If you're a worker more on a daily basis, like it's your asshole boss. It's not necessarily like, you're not getting like, you know, fucked over as directly by like some financier in New York City. It's... And that's where a lot of the resentment goes towards, is, you know, those prof- professional strata. Right. And uh, Strata is a mean, good word. You can see that in anarchism, too. A lot of anarchist politics is just, you know, how do we manage society without, you know, we have self-management without having this managerial cast, Right. And I think there is a, a certain there is a there's a need to have experts but the way they monopolize political control over movements is a very big problem because a lot of class resentment towards you know the petty bourgeois is often often like becomes a reactionary like almost like way of like presenting socialism as something that's unnatural because it comes from petty bourgeois people hmm. you know Like, the whole, like, you know, how right-wingers, like, they they pretend that they're the ones who are speaking for the true working man and that, you know, the socialists are just, like, a bunch of latte-sipping, like, you know, college kids. And, like, there is a real, like, class resentment there, but it's just channeled in a
2: reactionary way. Right. Yeah, I mean, but it's precisely the class resentment of our time. And as, as socialists, that's what we need to pick up on. I, not just like listen to the masses and you know, what am I gonna do? Like, not be a queer latte sipping cosmopolitan? No, I'm gonna keep doing that. Um, but, but well, and you
0: know, proles drink lattes too, everyone drinks lattes now. Everybody it's not
2: fucking a- drinks lattes, yeah. Well, no, yeah, so, yeah there's that, no such thing as okay. a
1: pearl culture too. That's another like myth that they try
2: to, yeah, there. it's like the, there's a the culture of capital, like that's what there yeah. is, and, that, and that's <laughs> that's our great myth. That's our social fabric. That's our religion. That's our, you know, it's, it's a very strange condition to be in. And it's, I think it's like a philosophically kind of important one. It signals the end of history in a way and a kind of universal something breaking out, but it's, it's not great. Like it doesn't live up to its potential. And, you know, I think a lot of God, a lot, a lot of people, like, you know, especially like white leftists that I've seen are, are really looking for some kind of organic, like, tradition to be a part of, and that's that's what, that's so frightening. That's the, <laughs> you know, that's, on the one hand, you know, that's probably why I'm doing like Talmudic, you know, kind of research on, you know, the commentary of the commentaries of capital or something like that. On the other hand, this is also why people turn towards some kind of weird you know white like uh racialism or kind of indigenism uh, which as perverse as it is to talk about white indigenism in the united states i think you know what i mean like well uh, i mean there's people have always said like we got
0: to protect us us natives against the irish you know so yeah there's there's been so white native it is white nativism for sure i mean
2: nativism yeah it's it's it's, it's a fraught term but you know it's nominally speaking does identify what i'm talking about
0: yeah i wonder what are the pros? Because for me, you know, I subscribe to the tendency of the rate of profit to fall theory. I think that's what's underpitting a lot of what's been happening, especially since you know the Great Recession and the crisis in 7 08. Um, I don't think that whoever's president is going to fix these problems, and I think that something's going to hit probably within the next administ- the next uh, presidential term. So, And that's partly why I didn't support Sanders, because if he had won, he would have been blamed for whatever happened.
2: Yeah, undoubtedly.
0: So can we talk about, like, suppose there was like a major financial crisis during a Trump administration. What would be the political fallout from that? And would there be any way that we could somehow capitalize on that to advance a communist politics?
1: I guess, like I was saying earlier, we're just going to have to show how Trump can't live up to his economic promises to the working class and I think you know the the fact that the economic crisis is probably going to happen during his presidency will just make that all the much easier to make our case on a
2: empirical grounds
0: do you have anything lexi or
2: on uh, Trump and the cri- and the crisis to come um yeah I I um, I also find that um. Uh, tendential fall in the rate of profit uh, idea, plausible, it, it does, I don't know, it does have some explanatory value. Uh, a lot of the, I don't know, I, I, I drove, I drove for uh, one of these cab app kind of things for a while, and um, I talked to a lot of people downtown uh, doing finance and uh, consulting, financial analysis, and I'm guessing most of them weren't Marxists, um, and they all seem to think that the tech bubble in San Francisco was totally unsustainable and were destined for another dot-com crash. I I find that plausible. Um, There's a a sense... I I don't want to say that there's, you know, there's the real economy and then there's all these fake number games because, let's be real, some of these fake number games are intrinsic to capitalism. Like, it's kind of what it's all about. But you, you can't float an economy on startups forever. That's sort of like... A lot of the excess capital that comes out of finance is, you know, floods, uh, tech, I mean, vice versa, really, yeah. dialectical introduction. But yeah, there's, it's incredibly likely that there's going to be some kind of economic crisis, if not in four years, and the next eight years, I mean, just, I don't even feel like I'm making a prediction, just sort of seems, seems to be tides as well in, tight roll well out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it seems to be accepted
1: by mainstream bourgeois economists that we're going to face a, a crisis. And yeah. So that's kind of, if like Marxists are always saying there's going to be a crisis, because we know there's always going to be a crisis, there seems to be a lot of, you know, knowledge on the streets that there's going to be a crisis soon in, in the markets.
2: Yeah, I, I, there's an old joke, you know, Marxists have predicted uh, like 10 of the last five crises. Like or crisis. <laughs> right? um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's very plausible we're heading for another crisis. And so a Trump administration will probably bear the fallout just by guilt by association. And will that open up an opportunity for the left? Of course it will. Can the left capitalize on it? Depends heavily on how independent it can get in the next four years. Um, if we can't break from simple, vulgar anti-Trumpism, um then we're gonna have a problem um we're gonna have a problem for all the same reasons that the left has for the whole time it'll be the bernie sanders problem again um fe- feeding all that energy be the anti-war movements problem again if we can develop some socialist politics if we can develop some minute political will among the fractious groups of petty bourgeois intellectuals frustrated and unemployed or underemployed as we are like if, if, if we can get some of these people to fucking put aside the differences be adults and like tr- actually fall through in the principles instead of being you know a bunch of bad faith nihilists like so we're the fucked things- then <laughs> <laughs> well all I can say is that um, the hard right is already out organizing us and um, I don't know I wouldn't trust the left to run a lemonade stand, as it said, but yeah. I do think that some more serious agency will start to set will start to be set in motion now that the, at least the rhetoric has gotten so extreme. People, yeah. oh, people are going to die. Oh, I know people are going to die. Like just the way people talk about this. Oh, it's fascism. Will we will we recognize fascism when if it comes? Because we use the word fascism so much. I'm not sure. But the point is, like, um, the point is that more serious elements are, are bound to emerge. There are adults out there. There are people that are thinking about this, that are concerned about yeah. this, that are willing I, to collaborate, that are willing to go against national consensus, that are willing to embrace ideas that are against the national history. I mean, look at the National think, Policy Institute. <clears throat> the Nazis. The Nazis. Yeah. Like, I
0: know,
1: I how think American can you get? Possible.
2: Like, I think it's possible that,
1: you know, we'll be able to get enough people to put aside, you know, the narcissism of small differences to actually unite and move beyond sectarianism. It's just that a lot of the leftist culture in the United States is just so deeply sectarian. I don't know what to blame it on, but I think Maoism has a part of it and Trotskyism. Because Maoism and Trotskyism kind of became the, like, currents of Marxism. That dominated after the 1950s and like both of these currents have this obsession with like purifying the rings through splitting i think that's part of the problem but on the other end like i think the reason splits happen sometimes they are legitimate reasons and sometimes groups like are not willing to work together because their politics are just that different and the split is actually good for the group because it allows you know it allows the group to actually work in a less impeded way if that makes sense like it actually like let's say like you have a you know a split of a group that refuses to work with unions and refuses to you know take part in political struggles or whatever and they have a very sectarian attitude towards you know politics and they don't part you know they were not willing to go to these anti-Trump talks and talk to people, they're not willing to actually reach out to people, or they have a very sectarian attitude where they kind of snuff the rest of the left. That hurts some group, and so splitting from that can be good. But on the other end, like I can't think of like splitting being a good thing as far as building movements goes.
2: Well, yeah, I, I just have to wonder, how many of these splits that are on so-called ideological grounds, how many of these groups end up working together on common projects afterwards that's probably pretty pretty low not not a lot because most of these splits aren't really ideologically motivated as you already mentioned the narcissism of small differences it's nowhere more important than the left and i don't know looking at the history of the german left like in a way it's kind of like i don't know boils my blood a little bit that people couldn't get it together um, it's, it's for understandable historical reasons, of course. Um, but yeah, we have, we have a choice. We can learn from history or not. History rhymes. I, I don't know. I don't think that means that, you know, we are getting the FEMA camps or something <laughs> as, as now, now it's a left-wing idea to say that there's going to be concentration camps, right? Like the yeah, FEMA camps. You uh, the the to be camps. the
1: right wing that believed in FEMA camps. And now it's like the left wing that thinks that the concentration camps are coming. That's a good point. Like, yeah, l- little- Speaking of left wing fear mongering, I think we shouldn't talk about Russia. ah uh, because that's that's been a, a big a big uh liberal obsession with this whole trouble uh, phenomena. It's incredible. No, uh, yeah, it's, um- it's 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 really like I noticed this before the Russia thing became really pronounced, but like like the anti trump demonstrations were almost like competing the, like with who could be the real american nationalist so like oh trump thinks he was all about love gloves america but we're the real nationalists we actually are america
0: thought of so, the um, dnc like the yeah, dnc america is
1: already great was their slogan ugh, or, and it
0: know. was it was basically it, it was basically a republican convention from like 2000 you know 2008 you know what I mean like it was it yeah. like the you see you see that already and that's that's not new on the left either it's it's I'm just I, the image that's coming into my mind is like that picture of like Keith Oberman like wrapped in the flag like looking at the camera you've, you've seen that image going around right
2: yeah not recently yeah it's really it's really about. gross yeah yeah, for for the reasons we were talking about before, for the reasons of, like, human aptitude towards collective belonging, like, uh, the problem of nationalism, and the, also just sort of, I don't know, I think the idea that people don't want to have been, like, been born in, like, a place that isn't, like, I don't know. They don't they don't want to believe that everything that they learn growing up is backwards. They want to kind of be proud of where they are and where they're from. Like, I'm, you know, not particularly, but, you know. I I, I know that that I would like to be. (laughs) And um, I'm so
1: frustrating when I argue with liberals and reactionaries because they just can't comprehend the idea of not being a nationalist. Like, like, does it it doesn't logically make sense to them to not think that your country is the best and wanting to dominate and be the greatest? Like, why would you not want that? You were born here. You live here. This is yours. You should want it to be the best. Like, you want to be as good as possible. Why do you not want your country? Like, it's, it's just – it doesn't logically make sense to a lot of people to be anti-nationalists, like liberals and reactionaries.
2: That means that we have to, like, disaggregate a bunch of shit from nationalism because people – if if nationalism is just a, a human assumption, then there's clearly <laughs> something so – our problems are partially, like, what are we calling nationalism? There's got to be – the important stuff in nationalism, things that, you know, can arrange a, a good human life, got to be detachable from that shit. Like, yeah. there's, there's, you know, you can love where you're from and the people, like, where you're from that are around you without having to be like that. Like, yeah, exactly. There, There is, I don't know, like, I, I have some, I still, like, I have some uh, fondness for the, you know, liberal com- cosmopolitanism that's, you know, as all the... Post-Stalinist uh, imagery of all the nations holding hands and that kind of stuff. Like, I know it's a very limited consciousness because it's, oh, you know, we're all celebrating our nations together. Yeah, but that, um, that, that I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Shit. Yeah, but uh, let, let's be honest. It's uh, looks pretty nice to me right now. Yeah, when compared, compared to this
1: reactionary, like anti-globalist stuff. Like, I'll take yeah. that because yeah. like globalization is. Like, the reason, one of the, or not, it is one of the reasons capitalism is so progressive. Because it truly makes a worldwide society. Yeah, like, you have globalization global markets and you have predictive. global, you know, perspectives before capitalism. But capitalism essentially forces it so that there's a global market and a global society. So, it really does create a whole new level of globalization. Right. And, like, it's just... So much of what's hated about Trump is his overly nationalistic rhetoric, but like people respond to it by being like anti-Russian. So it's just it's, it's so frustrating.
0: Well, and so much of it comes from this—it's uh, the same mentality of 9/11 trutherism or you know Kennedy uh, assassination obsession, where it's like if I can just if I could just prove to the people that this is illegitimate then the whole thing is good. We're going to blow the lid off this whole thing, right? Like, that's the idea. And it's the same thing. Like, if I could just prove that Trump is a Manchurian candidate put in place by Putin, like, that's going to completely eradicate his whole base. But it's like, look around you. Trump is supported by a significant minority of this country. His approval ratings are in the toilet. Um, He won with fewer votes than Mitt Romney lost with. (laughs) <laughs> and he didn't. He didn't have. He lost the popular vote, and there was a. It was an extremely demoralized election. Tens of thousands of people in Michigan filled out everything on the ballot except for the presidential race. Beautiful. Like that's how disgusted. That's how disgusted people were with this. So it's like he's he's already illegitimate. People already don't like him. Like you don't need to like get obsessed with like finding the smoking gun of you know him being bosom buddies with Putin. Like you don't need that. <laughs>
2: I, I, you don't need it, but um, I think the reason why the Democrats are gleefully breaking their, you know, <laughs> their kind of, like, uh, play at scientism and rationality and embracing totally conspiratorial logic. I mean, it, it, I I didn't think I had any faith in the Democrats, but I just sort of thought of the Republicans as the crank conspiracy party, and now it's, you know, there, there really is, yeah. like... Intellectually speaking, nothing special about the Democrats anymore. Yeah, like they well, might and, be, you know,
0: yeah. It could, I mean, and it could, it could, it could be true. It could be true that and th- that the Russian agencies had some hand in this thing. But like, look That's at what. not why they
2: lost. They lost, right? They yeah. Well, to lose. No. they ran a shitty campaign.
0: Well, and look, and but also, like, even so, like, look at what is even being alleged. Like, if like, okay, what what happened? They basically exposed cheating within the democratic primaries. And so that's, that's so basically the Russians cheated by exposing our cheating. That's not fair that they cheated. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the whole thing is just nonsense on its face.
2: The Democrats cheated to lose. Does that ever sink in? Like they cheated to make sure that, that they would get the the wrong candidate who is like kind of predestined to win structurally over determined to win. Anyway, they actually cheated to lose. It's kind of incredible. Yeah how incompetent, how, and these are the pragmatists. I mean, yeah, I, I love
1: pointing that out, like how the Democrats like tried to set up Trump to be their opponent. And of hopes so like, they would just like sweep the election and ended up being like the ultimate like fuck up.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to yeah. lie. I, I would have enjoyed being a fly on the wall in like Hillary Clinton's like Hitler bunker-esque war room when <laughs> the numbers were coming in. Like I remember reading this article by someone who said who was there and this is like their alleged account where basically Hillary Clinton was in tears. and she was crying that kind of crying where like you try to talk, but like the words cut don't come out. Like she yeah. was crying that kind of crying. And eventually like what she's, she could make a few like a few audible things and the audible things that they could make out was she was mad at the director of the FBI. Fair enough. And she was mad at Obama for not doing
2: enough. You know, I've heard a lot of pundits go after Obama for this. And I got to say, if you're going to do machine politics, the president kind of does have to, you know, deal with the party apparatus and do more than just do a few stump speeches. Like, I got to say, obviously, Clinton isn't, like, a great candidate, like, but... Obama did kind of fail the party like yeah like
1: the machine politics means like you have an actual political machine on the ground that makes connections with people and wins their loyalty and the democrats really don't do shit like that anymore
0: yeah her whole campaign was completely the opposite because usually a politician will go out and promise people things and say i'm going to fix this i'm going to fix that and (laughs) but instead that's
2: never this shit's never going to happen you like socialists. all, yeah, all well, your dreams aren't gonna happen. Trump, if you want everything to be exactly the same, vote for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Her, th- yeah, her, th- her whole thing was like, "I, it's my turn. I'm a woman, and what isn't it great that you get to vote for me?"
2: Ah, uh, yeah,
1: that that-, that almond milk latte now. <clears throat> this that fucking arrogance is why I just felt that sense of like, "Fuck you," and Trump won, because it was less just like, "Yeah, you know, you're wrong." But at the same time,
0: like, to... and, and where's she been since? You know, like, if if people really believe that there was like that the Russians hacked the election somehow, and and instituted like some kind of Manchurian candidate situation, why aren't they? Why aren't they? Where's Clinton? Like, where is she? Where's She's she
2: been? Out of the public eye because she is not yeah. going to be like a public figure really.
0: Like yeah. Crazy. Well, she she doesn't really believe it because if that was if if she thought that she had like the barest sliver of a chance of still winning, she would be all over it. Yeah. But she she, she is nowhere die. to she
2: she's not that she, stupid.
0: She knows it's bullshit.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of party operatives know it's bullshit, but you know, party's a party and like,
0: again to be clear it's it's probably true that the, it could well be true the russians had something to do with the hack but i think that the hack all it did was expose the democratic party's internal workings and if they didn't have such shitty internal workings you know it's still their fault you yeah. know anybody you slice it
1: yeah it's 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 anyway. a, if a it's a way for them to blame
2: everyone but themselves god it is really narcissistic like
0: That's it for this week. Uh, Thanks to Lexi and Donald for joining us. In two weeks, we'll reconvene to discuss the Communist Manifesto. Bye.